So let's talk about the individual as a case study. A 64-year-old man presents with new onset weakness. His medical history is noteworthy for type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and stage 3B chronic kidney disease. We note that he's had a myocardial infarction six months ago complicated by heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. And his current medications include lisinopril, metoprolol, insulin, and furosemide. And also of importance, we note that he was started on spironolactone 25 milligrams a week ago by his cardiologist. Two days ago, he has noted now generalized weakness that has worsened over the last 24 hours. And when you look at the basic metabolic profile, you can see that he now has a potassium of 6.8. He also has evidence of a normal gap anti or a normal gap metabolic acidosis. His serum creatinine concentration is 2.0, and his glucose is 184. And upon discovery of these uh, derangements in the metabolic profile, he was instructed to go to the emergency department. So let's talk a little bit about uh, potassium homeostasis. This is just an overview to remind us that in a typical 70 kilogram individual, we have roughly 3,500 milliequivalents of total body potassium. The majority of that is found in skeletal muscle with a smaller quantity in liver and red blood cells. And then there's about 70 milliequivalents of potassium in the extracellular fluid. So this very large inward to outward gradient is important in determining the cell voltage. And this is why derangements in plasma potassium primarily give rise to manifestations in excitable tissues, things like neuromuscular tissue, as well as cardiac tissue. This is just an overview of uh, K-homeostasis. Imagine that somebody's ingesting 100 milliequivalents of uh, total body or 100 milliequivalents of potassium. The kidney is the main route by which that potassium is excreted. There is a small contribution of the GI tract primarily in the colon. Now the ability of the kidney to excrete potassium is uh, not instantaneous, it takes uh, several hours. So to guard against excessive rises in extracellular K concentration following a load, there's initially a shift of potassium into the cell so as to allow the kidney enough time to reestablish total body K balance. The two most important factors physiologically in shifting potassium into the cell is the release of insulin and also beta adrenergic stimulation. Well, hyperkalemia, I think is uh, no surprise to anybody, is a common disorder. It's uh, been found to be present in up to 40 to 65% of patients who have chronic kidney disease who are actually being managed in clinics that are specialized to care for these individuals. Uh, the annual mortality rate can be as high as 25%. This is just data that uh, is retrospective in nature from a BA study where they looked at the relationship of a plasma potassium and mortality within a 24-hour period after discovery of that plasma potassium. And what you'll note in this graph is this graded relationship between the rise in the extracellular K concentration and the 24-hour mortality. The greater the plasma potassium, the greater mortality. And so again, it's retrospective data, but again, it highlights the idea that uh, hyperkalemia is not a benign disorder. 
So when we see a patient who has hyperkalemia, how do we approach that individual? And listed here are several main categories of what causes hyperkalemia. One of the things we always want to exclude is so-called pseudo-hyperkalemia. That is when the potassium is high in a test tube, but not in the individual. This obviously occurs in somebody who has had fist clenching during the phlebotomy technique, the use of a tourniquet. And so if you ever suspect pseudo-hyperkalemia, it's best to have the patient uh, repeat the value using a green top tube and also without a tourniquet. Excess K intake can certainly be a contributor to hyperkalemia. However, this will only really occur if you have normal kidney function, or I should say depressed kidney function. In the setting of normal kidney function, you can actually ingest quite a large amount of potassium and never get hyperkalemia. The normal kidney has a large capacity to excrete potassium. So where excess K intake really plays a role is in those individuals who decrease kidney function. Cell shifts can cause hyperkalemia. This is usually transient in nature. Things like metabolic acidosis, insulin deficiency, or alpha adrenergic stimulation. These are just one of many factors that can cause cell shift of potassium out of the cell. Cell injury, by the way, is another potential cause. Perhaps the most common cause though of hyperkalemia, either in the inpatient or the outpatient setting is impaired kidney excretion. This is really the main cause of sustained hyperkalemia. And while several factors are involved, many of the factors tend to center around disturbances in the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone axis. The main causes of impaired kidney excretion, they can be categorized as people who have decreased mineralocorticoid activity, uh, primary decreases in the amount of sodium being delivered to the distal nephron. This might occur, for example, in decompensated heart failure where you have avid proximal sodium reabsorption and therefore less sodium delivery. Oliguric acute kidney injury will limit distal sodium delivery or acute glomerulonephritis. These two latter entities, hyperkalemia, tend to be much more common. And then anything that primarily disrupts function in the collecting duct. So a variety of medications that will go over. Tubulointerstitial renal disease, we always have to think about where the primary pathologic process is attacking the tubules. And urinary obstruction is also a common cause of hyperkalemia. In fact, I always remind clinicians, if, you're, if you have unexplained hyperkalemia, it's always worthwhile considering, does the patient have an obstructive uropathy? One of the other risk factors is age, interestingly. As individuals age, there's a age-related decrease in the ability to make renin and aldosterone. In this particular study, you can see that on the left-hand panel, as you progressively reduce sodium intake to try to contract extracellular fluid volume, notice that the young individuals have a robust increase in plasma renin activity in comparison to otherwise healthy elderly subjects. And that's also reflected in plasma aldosterone, uh, reductions in sodium intake, even when augmented with the dose of furosemide, notice how young individuals have a much more robust increase in aldosterone as compared to elderly subjects. This age-related impairment that is reviewed here perhaps contributes to the higher risk of hyperkalemia when older subjects are placed on drugs that target 
the renin angiotensin system. So again, I emphasize the idea that uh, disease states or medications that disrupt the renin angiotensin system are common causes of hyperkalemia. If we go back here to the beginning, uh, remember that aldosterone acts by stimulating sodium movement into the cell of the collecting duct that creates a negative charge. And that's one of the big driving forces for K secretion. So anything that disrupts the activity of aldosterone or the formation of aldosterone, hyperkalemia tends to be a quick occurrence. So aldosterone receptor blockers, such as spironolactone, aplerinone, and a new mineralocorticoid antagonist called phenerinone. These are aldosterone receptor antagonists. Drugs that block the epithelial sodium channels, such as amylaride, triamterine, the antibiotic trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or pentamidine. These block sodium movement. You limit the generation of the negative charge. That's why potassium secretion is impaired. There are entities that limit the formation of aldosterone from the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland, in addition to intrinsic adrenal disease. The drug heparin reversibly interferes in aldosterone biosynthesis, as does the azole antifungal ketoconazole. The ARBs block the AT1 receptor on the zona glomerulosa cells, and that's why angiotensin receptor blockers cause hyperkalemia because they limit aldosterone production. The ACE inhibitors block the conversion of ANG1 to ANG2 and therefore lower aldosterone levels. There's one drug that's clinically available that is a plasma renin activity blocker called aliscrin. It will limit the formation of angiotensin 1 and subsequently lower aldosterone levels. And then we have a variety of processes that block the release of renin. They include most commonly the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but also beta blockers, both prostaglandins and adrenergic input stimulate renin release. And so blocking either prostaglandins with NSAIDs or administration of a beta blocker will lower renin levels. The calcineurin inhibitors such as cyclosporin and tacrolimus have a variety of effects on K-homeostasis, but one of the things that they tend to do is lower the renin levels of the blood. The diabetic individuals frequently have hyporenemic hypoaldosteronism due to microvascular disease of the juxtaglomerular cells. And I already alluded to the idea that elderly subjects have this age-related defect in production of both renin and aldosterone. Well, what are the clinical consequences of hyperkalemia? First of all, cardiac toxicity, I think, is the most commonly appreciated toxicity. And so we have to be aware of the EKG changes that can occur with hyperkalemia, the peaking of the T waves, prolongation of the PR interval and QRS intervals. Muscle weakness uh, is also a manifestation. I always remind people that if you ever were called to the emergency room for a dialysis patient, for example, and they complain that they have weakness, you always have to be suspicious of uh, hyperkalemia. And lastly, hyperkalemia can be associated with secondary development of an acidification defect. Hyperkalemia suppresses ammoniogenesis in the proximal tubule, thereby limiting buffer availability for distal hydrogen ion secretion. That's why hyperkalemia and normal gap acidosis frequently coexist, as in the patient that I presented at the beginning of this talk.
With regards to EKG manifestations, it is worthwhile noting that there's oftentimes a poor correlation between having EKG changes and the degree of hyperkalemia. This was a uh, study where individual values were obtained and a cardiologist actually read the ECG in these patients. And what you note here is on the graph that only when you got to very high values for plasma potassium was there a fairly high frequency of seeing the typical EKG changes as read by a cardiologist. Note that in individuals who had plasma potassiums here in the low sixes, EKG changes were frequently not present at all. And indeed, and you look at the individuals who had the most severe manifestations, arrhythmias, or even a, a cardiac arrest, in retrospect, only one of these individuals had typical EKG changes of hyperkalemia. So the point is, I don't think that we can necessarily rest and feel comfortable in somebody who has an elevated plasma potassium and a normal EKG in that the EKG or in cardiac status can quickly deteriorate even in the absence of classic changes.